0: and welcome to season three episode five of the Simply Minutes podcast. So before we start getting into this episode we're just going to answer the questions from last episode's podcast. So going back to the podcast we have Tom Jenkins a 41 year old male who presents to A&E with a two-day history of vomiting and epigastric pain. He's had two episodes of vomiting up fresh red blood He says he feels lightheaded and is complaining of palpitations at this moment in time. He's had a one-month history of worsening heartburn, no weight loss, no dysphagia or melina. He has a past medical history of osteoarthritis of the knee, which he takes ibuprofen for. His social history, he's a smoker and drinks approximately 20 units of alcohol a week. These were the following questions. Questions number one. What are the common causes of an upper GI bleed? Now, the answer for this question, some some of the most common causes for an upper GI bleed are peptic ulcers, which are usually caused by use of NSAIDs such as ibuprofen and aspirin without using any gastroprotection such as omeprazole um, or lansoprazole. Or perhaps it goes to disease from um, H. pylori infection that's not been that's not been treated. Another common cause of an upper opi- of, of GI bleeds are esophageal viruses, which you can read about in our learning bite. And esophagitis, which is usually just irritation of the esophagus, um, and it's most usually caused by um, irri- the I- irritation from gastric acid. Now, certain risk factors can put you at risk of esophagitis, such as smoking and um, excessive alcohol and steroids as well. Question number two, are, what are your top three differentials for Tom's presenting complaint? The top three differentials are peptic ulceration, Mallory-Weiss tear and esophagitis. And that's because he has risk factors of peptic ulceration, such as taking ibuprofen without any gastroprotection. Smoking and drinking alcohol again, which can contribute to peptic ulcer disease. His symptoms are also in keeping with peptic ulcer disease, based on the um, sort of vomiting and epigastric pain, and having smaller and vomiting up fresh red blood as well. Now, mal weiss tear tends to be um, a tear in the um, sort of the mucosa of the oesophagus that usually happens after people have. Vomiting and retching for um, a prolonged period. Now, he, in his history, he's had two days of vomiting, um, which could, or, you know, the vomiting could be due to multiple reasons, like a viral gastroenteritis, um, which could then result in him having a malaria, Rice tear, um, and that can then result in an upper GI bleed. And the last um, differential is esophagitis. Like I said, he has risk factors for oesophagitis. Um, such as smoking and drinking alcohol and he also has um, one month history of worsening heartburn with that in the back of your mind that could also be a solid differential diagnosis Um, the last question is what is is the Glasgow Blackford score now there are multiple different different scores within gastroenterology that can be used to help stratify risks for upper GI bleed the Glasgow Blatchford score helps stratify upper GI bleed patients into low or high risk and helps determine sort of candidates who are appropriate for either immediate management with endoscopy or for outpatient management. Now, the Glasgow Blatchford score is calculated using um, lots of different parameters such as urea, hemoglobin, systolic blood pressure, heart rate, melanin at presentation, syncope at presentation, presence of liver disease or cardiac failure. If a patient scores zero, it indicates low risk and that they're potentially suitable for an outpatient endoscopy. Any score greater than zero means that they're appropriate for an inpatient endoscopy treatment. Um, a score above six, a score above or equal to six, is associated with a fifty percent increased risk of needing an intervention. So those are the answers for the three questions. If you want to find out more about the, about upper GI bleed please go on our social media pages and flick through our learning bites. Now that we've covered our podcast from the last episode, we're going to go into today's um, episode. Usually we love to talk about women's health, um, obviously being women. A lot of the women's health issues we can relate to, you know, but also we, are, we both have an interest in obstetrics and gynae. Um, not the specialty in itself, but, uh, but mostly the topics within the specialty. So we thought we'll do our gentlemen a favour and discuss some c- common issues within sort of um, the male reproductive system. So today we're going to discuss about prostatic diseases. Um, we're going to delve a bit into prostatic cancer as it's one of the most common cancers that affects men within the UK. But also we'll go into a bit about benign prostatic hyperplasia, which is again quite a common condition among older men in this country so first of all we're just going to quickly describe what the prostate gland is it's um moya's going to give us a, a quick anatomy refresher maybe not anatomy maybe a anatomy and a physio- physiology refresher as to what the prostate gland is and um its purpose and yeah
1: so in all honesty, I know there are people out there who relate with me. My anatomy is not the greatest, but GP land is calling me, not surgery. <laughs> um, so what is the prostate? The prostate is um, an accessory reproductive gland. And the role of the prostate is to secrete enzymes into the semen. So the semen um, is fluid in the ejaculate and it contains sperm which makes its way through the female reproductive tract to fertilise an egg. However, for it to survive in the female reproductive tract, um, it needs to remain liquid because it has a lot of clotting factors. So what the semen does is it secretes enzymes, which breaks down these clotting factors. And this allows the semen to remain fluid rather than clotted and then pass through to female reproductive tract. Anatomically,
0: hmm. From what I remember, the prostate has got, is it two lobes? Yeah, anterior and posterior. Yeah. And I remember it had like a median sulcus or something. Um,
1: to be fair, the only thing I remember anatomically, but it's more to do with prostate cancer. It's, it's very like detailed anatomy. is the name of this fascia, which prevents um, spread to the rectum. Um, I don't even know how to pronounce it. It's called Dion Villenea's fascia. So it's like a part of the peritoneum which drops down to just where the rectum is and separates the rectum from the prostate and urinary bladder. So that prevents um, pros- prostate cancer metas- metastasizing to the rectum. And that's the extent of my anatomy. <laughs>
0: that's good, actually. I didn't, I didn't... I'd actually had forgotten about that, Asha. So, my really, means better than mine. Do you know, the funny thing is, yesterday yeah, at work... Um, I was speaking to one of the other doctors who's like um she's she's, she's actually an opsin gun trainee and we're talking about the up-and-coming exam, the MRCOG part one, and about sort of studying for a real. And she was just asking me if I've started revising. And then she was like <laughs> we're talking about the anatomy and stuff and having to go through that again and revise that the biochemistry. And she was like, I was a surprise that we have to learn about the male reproductive system. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Could be, um, so, prostatic symptoms. Yes. So there are certain group of symptoms called LUTS or LUTS, whatever you prefer, that men can experience, and it could be down to benign prostatic hyperplasia or um, prostatic cancer. Um, and until further investigation or confirmation of what it is, um, yeah, it's just kind of luts it's just referred to as luts so some of the symptoms that people can experience include um, men can experience include things such as weak urinary stream so you go to the toilet and you have very poor flow you feel like you have to strain to pass out your urine um, it, it takes a long time or you can, it can come in dribbles Something else that men experience is frequency. So let's say you used to go maybe three, four times a day and now you're going eight, eight, ten times throughout the day. Some other experience um sorry, some other symptoms men can experience include urgency, so just a very urgent sensation that you absolutely have to go to the toilet um right there and then feeling like you can't make it in time. And then another one as well that I think a lot of men tend to notice when they get older is nocturia. And nocturia is just our medical way of saying you're waking up at night to go to the toilet. And although this can be normal for some, um, it again, increased frequency throughout the night or not going throughout the night before and now this is something new. So these are some of the lower urinary tract symptoms
0: that men can experience. Anything else to add? Sensation of incomplete voiding. Yes, yeah, so like we described that the most common symptoms that men have with prosthetic disease, whether it's cancer or benign prosthetic hyperplasia are lunar urinary tract symptoms. Um, a nice way to think about them is storage versus voiding symptoms. So storage symptoms being issues with actually storing the urine, um, like going more frequently, going at night time, Having an urge to go all the time, urgent continence. So you have a strong feeling that you need to go, and then you just go and you can't control it. And then you also have your voiding symptoms, which is issues where you're actually struggling to pass urine. Um, and then you have post-micturition symptoms, so that's feeling that you have a after you pee that you feel like you're not you're not fully peed, so your bladder still feels like it's still got something left in there. Um, and also post-micturition dribbling, so a bit of. Terminal dribbling after you've um you've, you've urinated as well. Now the reason why men have these symptoms in either benign prostatic hyperplasia or in prostate cancer is because of a bladder outlet obstruction. So the prostate has gotten so big that it's starting to um, put pressure, and um, it, yeah, it's got so big that the urethra, so the um, the urethra is what allows the bladder to empty urine um, out through the penis the prostate has gotten so big that it's actually preventing that from happening or it's reducing the ability of the urethra to completely allow urine to um, go through and pass properly and hence why men have these symptoms um, these symptoms have become quite common in a lot of men as they age now The most common prostatic condition is actually benign prostatic hyperplasia. And benign just means it's not cancerous. Um, And hyperplasia just means larger. So it just means that the prostate gets larger. And in men above the age of 50, about 40% of men will have um, BPH. Um, Or have some evidence of enlargement. And men above the age of 80, about ninety percent will have um sort of evidence of enlargement, whether that is on scan or on examination. So BPH um usually you we've talked about the symptoms, um the way it's picked up is obviously that fight fr- through the symptoms that we talked about, but also through examination. So um usually the the your doctor or a doctor will do a digital rectal examination also known as a PR examination which stands for per rectum. It's a pretty quick procedure, Um, anyone from an F1 upwards can do this and it's just a um, stick your finger in um, back passage, have a feel for the prostate gland, feel to see whether or not it's enlarged. Now the prostate apparently is meant to be the size of a walnut so anything larger than that is a bit of prostatic hyperplasia. Um, and you also feel the surfaces for any um, nodularity and you feel the consist- for the consistency as well. Because in prostate cancer, you wouldn't have a, um, it's not a firm prostate, it's more harder and it might be um, nodular as well. But in benign prostatic hyperplasia, it feels um, just large, but it's pretty um, smooth when you feel it. Um, And when you do feel a large prostate, you can really feel that it's quite enlarged. Now, in addition to doing this digital rectal examination, um, you also have to do blood tests. So what test is most commonly done for um, prostate problems is the PSA, which stands for Prostate Specific Antigen. Now, this blood test um, actually is not very specific. It's specific to the prostate, <laughs> but it's not specific in diagnosing prostatic, um, benign prostatic hyperplasia, just because certain things can actually increase um, the PSA levels, such as exercise, recent ejaculation, sex, and
1: PR prostitis
0: as well. And also if you've done a doctor re-examination, so if someone's done a PR examination, that can also increase the prost- the PSA levels if it's checked immediately after. Um, so those are just a couple of things to be aware of when interpreting the PSA. There are age-related PSA levels that you can look at um, to help to help in terms of looking at whether or not if this person needs the cut off. Because um, obviously you have to look at the clinical features as well as the patient's blood work to help give you a nice, um, to not to give you an understanding, sorry, um, of what's going on with them. Now in regards to treatment for um benign prostatic hyperplasia, usually it can be treated within the community by GPs. Um and it's usually they the treatment that is started is um tamsulosin which is an alpha blocker. And what that does is it helps relax the the smooth muscles in the um in the prostate um which enables people to um have some relief. Um and that helps sort of with the symptoms of, you know, feeling like you need to go more frequently or going more at night time and stuff like that. In addition to the medication, so the um the alpha block you would also be advised to some lifestyle changes like reducing caffeine intake, maybe re- restricting fluids at night time, that sort of thing and keeping a diary as well of symptoms, um, so that the doctor can see how how symptoms are improving or if symptoms are, you know, extremely debilitating. Um, In addition to the tamzolosin, there's other other medications that can be tried. Tamzolosin tends to be tried first because it provides immediate relief of symptoms. It works within a couple of days, actually. Um, But you can also try five alpha reductase inhibitors. One of the most common is finasteride. Um, What it does is it prevents the conversion of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone, which is the potent um, metabolite of testosterone. And this helps to decrease the prostatic volume. Now, this medication takes about six months before people start to see any change. So it tends to be more reserved for if alpha blockers are not working or are no longer providing symptomatic relief. Now, in medication isn't working and lifestyle lifestyle advice isn't working then patients might require surgical management and that's when they'll usually be referred from the GP. So to, if you're a gentleman who's going through this problem and you're, you feel like your medication isn't working it's probably best to speak to your GP. They can refer you to urology and what urology can do is they can sort of consider other um, options usually surgically surgical management So one of the um, common procedures to do is something called the TURP, which stands for transurethal resection of the prostate. Um, It's quite common and it's usually a a day case procedure um, and it involves using an um, endoscopy to remove the obstructive prostatic tissue. Um, I'm not gonna go into too much depth about the procedure and what it's done. But if you're interested in about it, you can actually read about it online. There are other different types of ways that they can do sort of um, procedures that are not entirely invasive for um, reduction of the prostate gland. But the TURF is actually the most common. So that's a little bit about benign prostatic hyperplasia. And if you are a man who is a bit, you know, kicking towards the, I want to say older, yeah, older side of the spectrum in terms of age and you are having any symptoms then make sure you speak to your GP because things can be done to help advise you in regards to lifestyle changes and lifestyle modification factors but also medication is available so you shouldn't have to struggle and live with this um sort of problems
1: great thank you So now I'm going to touch on prostate cancer. Um, However, there is quite an overlap, so I'll try not to overlap too much, but prostate cancer. So um, it's the most common cancer in men in the UK, with one in eight being diagnosed with it um, in their lifetime. Um, I recently had some teaching from the palliative consultant, and he was telling us how it's actually one of the best, cancers in terms of um prognosis and a lot of people do recover. Like um BPH, the symptoms are very similar. So your storage symptoms and your voiding symptoms which we've just managed. Um there are risk factors which I think are important to be aware of for patients and for us as clinicians to kind of just always have on the back of your mind to think, hmm, it could be BPH but because of this let me just make sure it's not prostate cancer so age um, as with most cancers the older you get an increase in your age increases your risk of developing prostate cancer for men ethnicity um, black African and Caribbean men are twice as likely to be diagnosed um, and also twice as likely to die from prostate cancer why We've both had a bit of a read around it and there's not really a clear kind of or clear cut reason as, as to why some places say genetics, some places say access to um, health care, some places say um, education around prostate. It's not really clear. It's it's just in statistics, unfortunately, Um, family history of prostate cancer, um, a BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene and then. Modifiable risk factors, as with most other cancers, so obesity, smoking, diabetes—all of this increases a man's risk of developing prostate cancer. I'm not going to touch on the lower urinary tract symptoms; I think we've kind of done that to death. But there are certain symptoms which can distinguish um, prostate cancer from BPH, um, and these symptoms are actually kind of an indicator, or more so, of an indicator as to okay, there's some kind of malignancy going on here and it's actually spread. Um, so any man who starts passing blood in their urine, what what we call hematuria, um, experiencing pain or burning when they pass urine, what we call dysuria, incontinence, um, pain in their loins, in their pelvis, and then rectal tenesmus. So that's the feeling of when you go to the toilet, you open your bowels, but you feel incomplete, That's all of these are an indication that the um, tumour has spread from the prostate to other organs within the pelvic region and then with advanced spread of prostate cancer you get your typical symptoms such as bone pain if it spreads there, um lethargy weight loss anorexia so these are all things that can indicate this is more prostatic cancer rather than bph um an examination is exactly the same so somebody would come in would take a history probably dip their urine maybe do want to do a pr exam just as before and like emmanuel has uh, mentioned when you when you suspect prostate cancer it's going to be more fixed nodular Um, and a hard rather than smooth um, like BPH. In terms of investigations so you also want to do um, a PSA um, but we know it's not that specific it can be raised by anything like we touched on earlier. So with um, diagnosing there's kind of three main things you're, you're looking at together so PSA levels is one of them and then Um, a biopsy, so a sample of the actual prostate, and that sample will be examined under a microscope to just look at the histology. And from that, um, it's also, you can either have it done under local anaesthetics, and this is a transrectal ultrasound guided biopsy, um, or you can have it transperineal, which is normally done under GA Um, And it depends which part of the prostate you want to access, what you would do. But that sample is looked under a microscope. You look at the histology and you grade it. And with that grade, you generate something called a Gleason Gleason score. And the higher your score, the worse your prognosis is. Um, Side note, I never know how to really understand it. So I, I think you look at the sample and you've got five grades you look at the most common grade um, out of five, and then the second most common, and
0: you add that score together. Is that correct? Yeah, it's the um, a, it's a combination of the second and the first most common um, patterns. Because yeah. when they do the biopsy, they take more than one. They take multiple biopsies at different points of the rectum, don't they?
1: Yeah. At
0: different points of the prostate, and then if they've got like maybe grade two. Grade two and grade three are the most common and they'll come back to get the together. schools together. Yeah.
1: Um, so we've got our PSA and we've got our Gleason school. And the final thing you'd want to do is to stage your disease. So um, Teach Me Surgery says CT or MRI. Um, and you'll use your TNM staging to see, you know, what part of the prostate or beyond the prostate, is the tumour in, is it in any lymph nodes and has it metastasised. Um, so these scores together, is really important in management because you, um, the patient will be discussed in MDT and all of these things will be considered and they, they will make a decision on the patient's risk. So some patients would be put in the category of, they're not that high risk, so we'll just surveil them or, Watchful watchful monitoring, I think it's also called. And then some are very high risk, so let's treat them. let well, that's such an active surveillance. So typically for those with lower life expectancies or low Gleason score, um, and essentially the goal of this is just to monitor the progression of the malignancy and then people will... or there will be intervention as necessary so some of the ways it's monitored is every three months they'll have a P- um, PSA every six months to about a year they'll have a rectal exam and then the prostate will be biopsied in one to three year intervals so any kind of significant changes might actually um, cause a patient to be moved from that uh, radical treatment and with radical treatment there are many options um, with any surgical approaches either, you know, there's medical, there's surgical, radiotherapy and chemotherapy. So with surgery, what we have is something called a radical prostatectomy. Um, and essentially, the prostate gland is removed, along with the seminal physicals, lymph nodes um, and some pelvic walls um, surrounding features as well. So that's just to make sure you get anywhere that, that lesion could potentially spread to. However, there are side effects. You're taking out a key reproductive organism, so it's responsible for many things. And you know, men will experience things like erectile dysfunction and stress incontinence just because that um, that reproductive organ, or it's a, it's a gland, um, an accessory. To be fair, it's no longer there, so parts of the reproductive tract for men can no longer do its job. Um another treatment option is radiotherapy and another is chemotherapy with anti androgen therapy and essentially um chemotherapy is just is um reserved for metastatic cancer, but the role of the anti androgen therapy androgens like the testosterone the more toxic metabolite form we mentioned earlier can actually stimulate the prostate to grow so if you give something that's anti to that you're, you're halting that growth as well of the of the cancer so that's just a whistle stop tool on prostatic cancer but I think it's important to touch on on both because they're quite common in men aren't they
0: yeah, they're very common in men, and being both from um, an African background, they're quite common in the Afro-Caribbean community within the UK. Mm. I'm not sure how common they are within African countries and Caribbean countries. I've not really looked into that data. Yeah, um, that
1: would be interesting. But I know it's
0: quite common in the, it's quite prevalent within the African and Caribbean communities within this country. Um so I think it's super important that we discuss this, just because I don't think a lot of men understand that having these symptoms, you know, although the prostate does get larger with age, there could be something more sinister going on besides mm. BPH. And even if it is BPH, you know, there's medication out there, or, and there's also advice out there on how to manage it. So... I think it's super important that if you're a male who's listening to this episode and you've gotten this far into the episode, if you or your family member, i.e., your dad, uncle, granddad, someone that you know is experiencing these symptoms, get them, get them to see their GP.
1: There was something interesting actually I came across. So there's this professor, um, Professor Frank Chinoogu.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is it Frank? No, I have to pronounce this right because my Nigerians will come for me. <laughs> 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 Professor Frank Chinekodu. Um, and he wrote a blog post which is actually on the NHS website about black men and mm. prostate cancer, and it's titled If anyone wants to read, it's quite it's a quick but interesting read. Time to talk about prostate cancer risk in black men and what we can do about it. So, all the statistics we touched on, he's already mentioned it. He also mentioned, which I didn't know. Black men are more likely to develop prostate cancer at a younger age. Um, Oh, are they? Yeah. So, um, and Mm. I didn't know this, but he said that black men aged 45, which is a lot younger than I would have thought, they're eligible for a PSA test because even if they have no symptoms, we know know it can be raised by anything, but if they have no symptoms and they have a raised PSA, I and mean, that's investigated they're more mm. likely to identify um, malignancy in the early curable stages just mm. because being black is a risk factor
0: so no, i didn't I,
1: I didn't know that
0: i i not know that men can actually ask their doctors to do the psa levels even if there is no indication yeah because i thought mm. it was a
1: quite a controversial thing because there's no psa screening however yes. When you think of screening screening is more like a public health tool. Yeah. So when we think of the population um here in the UK we have more white men. So mm-hmm. maybe it's taken that into account. I think it's more that
0: screening with the PSA wouldn't meet the Bradford Hill criteria. Yeah. So I think you know if you remember the Bradford Hill criteria from med school and it it's looks the like, seven. Um, yeah, there's the seven different things yeah. that need to be met in order for a screen um in order for um, an investigation to be used as a um, a public health tool to screen people, yeah. and I think the issue with the PSA is that it's not very specific. Yeah, because um, anything, stay exactly. cancer. So mm. it will probably the the pickup rate would be not the best. So that's why we don't go around doing CA125 on every every woman mm. to look for ovarian cancer, and hence it probably presents so late. Um and it usually presents with like quite advanced um disease because again CA125 um is not the, the most specific cancer cancer tumor marker. Mm. Um it can be raised in other cancers as well. So
1: yeah. mm. I hope I don't know. I mean, it looks like it's a pretty well like if men have it and it's caught on time, mm. it's managed well yeah um, but hopefully one day there will be something that yeah. that helps people detect it earlier yes
0: and um, hopefully there'll be a um, a screening program out there that can be implemented that is more specific and um, that will help pick up um sort of early stages of prostate cancer. but I think also a good thing is for for men to be aware of the symptoms mm. so like a lot of things you know although It's great to have screening programmes to detect conditions. Also having the public education Mm -hmm. um, and letting people be aware of what to look out for. Even if you're going to get a thousand extra men coming in, it's better because you're going to end up picking up cancer and men that would have probably presented very, very late on. Um, So I think just having more awareness. (laughs) So we actually had some technical difficulties
1: and the really interesting conversation we have, the audio has been lost, but just a quick summary of that conversation. We went on to discuss why men present later with their issues compared to women and one of the reasons we fought for this was because as women growing up it's drilled into us, examine your breasts, any discharge, any pain, any changes um, and the same for any vaginal changes, it's really stressed um, to us to go to the GP as soon as possible, whereas it may not be the same case for men. One reason I also thought was um, with prostate, it's well known that a PR exam will be done and that may be off-putting to men that such an intimate exam will be done. However, Manuela did disagree because she's currently on her ONG rotation and in her clinical experience women she sees always express as well their feelings of embarrassment with intimate exams so i guess we don't really know um the evidence or studies out there are all kind of anecdotal it would be really good to find out what you know so leave us a comment or tweet us why you think men present later than women now for this week's podcast a 19 year old male presents to edie an onset pain in his scrotum. He cannot think of any triggers. All he did today was attend lectures and play a game of football with his friends earlier. As you're taking his history, he quickly grabs a sick bowl and vomits. There's no blood or bile in the vomit. On examination, his testes are extremely tender and swollen. His abdomen is soft and tender, chest clear, Heart sounds S1, S2 audible. He's a university student who doesn't smoke and drinks approximately 10 units of alcohol a week. He has a past medical history of eczema, and he reports, "Doctor, my brother experienced a similar pain in his scrotum a few years ago." Questions: One, what's your top differential diagnosis? Two what are your other differentials? And three, given your top differential diagnosis, how would you manage this patient? Keep an eye out on our socials for the answers to this podcast, as well as for more content on mental health. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Simply Medics podcast. We hope you really enjoyed it. Make sure you follow us at Simply Medics on Instagram and Twitter. Or if you want to drop us an email, send it to simplymedics at gmail.com. Please help us out by sharing, subscribing and dropping us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Enjoy the rest of your day.